Uh, I want to wish Happy Father's Day to the men. Would you stand, men, if you're a father? And if you're a, if you're a grandfather, would you remain standing? And now let's do the great-grandfathers. Anybody a great-grandfather? There you go, a couple of them. Praise the Lord. I've been in the church almost my whole life, and I've noticed something really important, that on Mother's Day, the, the pastor comes up here, and he has a really nice sermon, and he wants to talk about his own mom and how she's meant all the world to him, and how we couldn't accomplish anything without mothers and women, and how great it is that God gives us great women. And then five weeks later, we have Father's Day, and he comes in, the, the pastor comes in, and he pounds the fathers for their faithlessness, how they're not doing what they're supposed to, how they need to be better men, how they need to stand up, and he makes everybody feel bad. So here's the good news. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get everybody today. How about that? <laughs> so it was 2009 and Don Mountain, the founder of Equipping Leaders, uh, he and I were in, uh, in the Gachapati district of Orissa on the east coast of India. And uh, we had been preaching outdoors and doing a, a doing an evangelistic crusade all day. And, and then on the way back to our hotel, our host, Pastor Nog, had us stop in two villages where the churches and the people had been severely persecuted. It was a season of persecution in Orissa. It was a dangerous place, and the radical Hindus were attacking churches. We stopped first at a village called Patar, and the people had been chased away into the mountains from their homes, not just their church, but the Christians have been chased out of their homes and they've been dwelling in the mountains in the woods for five months to try to stay safe. And the church was still damaged. They were waiting for the police who never came. The pulpit and the furniture were ruined. The metal roof had holes knocked in it. The windows and the door were damaged. But what I remember most is the weeping the women in the church as we visited were just standing there weeping over their loss. It had been five months and still they were weeping. They were dejected and afraid. And so what do you do? Well, you pray. Don Mountain prayed for them that God would visit them and encourage them in the midst of their great struggle. So what is the church's response to such treatment and persecution? Are we powerless to do nothing but wait for the police and the justice of men? Are politicians our hope? If we just pass good laws, will it change? Well, the Bible says no to those things. We are in a spiritual battle between good and evil. The dividing lines are not determined by political parties nor racial division, nor even national boundaries. The dividing line is the cross of Christ. That's why Pastor Andrew is preaching right now a series through Ephesians chapter 6 to call us as a church to battle in spiritual warfare. The third and fourth petitions of the Lord's Prayer go like this. Our, our Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, 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 that petition is not simply a positive prayer for national change or for people's hearts to be open. It includes prayers of judgment on the enemies of God. So this morning, 
We're going to look at Psalm 137. Why don't we stand as we read this together? Hear the word of God. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Jehovah's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Jehovah, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And thus ends a reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. You can have a seat. Now that's pretty intense, I think. A lot of emotion there, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of desire for vengeance. This psalm is called an imprecatory psalm. Now imprecatory is a $20 word that means cursing. Um, to imprecate is to call down a curse on someone else. Here's a New Testament example. This isn't just Old Testament. Here's a New Testament example in Galatians 1. Paul says this, Galatians 1.8. There it is. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul says that anyone who twists and mutilates the message and the truth of the gospel is an enemy of truth, an enemy of God, and therefore under God's curse. Now, there are at least six psalms, uh, imprecatory psalms in, in, in the book of Psalms, and another four or five that have imprecations as part of them. And these psalms are seldom prayed, seldom preached through in, in the modern evangelical church because we're nice. We're not warriors. We're, we're nice, and, and we want to be nice. And beloved, these psalms are the very word of God, and we don't want to ignore them. It's foolhardy to fil filter out of the scriptures uh, those things which you might find difficult or even, even a little harsh or old-fashioned. These psalms are the songs of Jesus. Jesus is the sweet psalm singer of, of Israel. That They are his words. He sang them for you and for me. And instead of it explaining them away, perhaps we should be transformed by them instead. Maybe, just maybe, our prayer lives will deepen and we will see the power of God. I have three things that I want to share with you this morning. The psalm divides very easily into three parts. So three things that I want to share about the gospel and the psalm. And the first is a reason to weep. Now, what's worth crying over? That's the question. Well, a lot of things are. When, when my 30-year-old daughters were 10 and 11, they were on a rec soccer team that went undefeated throughout the season. We were pretty good in spite of the coach. And they, 
That was me. And they finished, they finished the season with the Sugar and Spice Tournament up in, up in Douglasville. And they won Friday night and then Saturday morning. And we're headed to the Saturday night game. And if they win this game, they would play in the championship on Sunday. And what happened on Saturday night was not pretty. They, they ran into a buzzsaw. It was 28 degrees outside that Saturday night, so it was miserable, so you don't know what's in the girl's head. And then when we showed up, the other team had matching coats, matching hats, and matching propane heaters, and we knew we were in trouble. And we were a U12 team, and our team was mostly 10 and 11. Their girls were all 12. They were bigger than us, older than us. It, it turned out it was a select team. They had held tryouts. It was a select team traveling around northern Georgia as a touring rec team, so they were also undefeated. And so, actually, we played really well. It was one-to-one at halftime. We were still in the game, but we lost three-to-one. They scored with a few minutes left. And as our daughter, Alicia, leader, the best player on the team, who, who started crying first while she kept on playing those last couple minutes trying to, in some way, to score two goals and then when she cried, Becca started crying. And then when the two of them started crying, the whole team was running around the field just with tears streaming down their face. And the game was over. And I gathered them around me and I told them, go ahead, cry. It, it's worth it. But some people would say, Jim, it's just sports. You should have told them to stop. It's not that big a deal. Well, it was a big deal. Some things are worth crying over, and certainly losing a, a championship is. Learning when to cry and what to cry for is part of learning to be a warrior for Christ. In this case, the people of God, the people of Judah, are in exile in Babylon. It's around 586 B.C., and Jerusalem has been overrun by the Babylonian Empire, the most powerful nation on the planet. And King Nebuchadnezzar has shipped into exile Judea's military officers, the upper class, the priests, all of those people so that Jer Jerusalem can't refortify itself and revolt. And then he took the king and he gathered all the king's sons and he killed the king's sons right in front of the king, and then he cut out his eyes so that the last thing he would ever see and remember was his own sons being murdered. And so all they can do is sit in Babylon and weep at what they've lost. Their homes, their livestock, their treasures, their, their cities, and most of all their temple where the glory of Jehovah dwells. Built on the uppermost spot of Mount Zion, the highest place in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's army has leveled and burned a temple. So their captives, in great humor, their captors, their tormentors, ask them for songs. And they're not asking for songs so they can experience the best of Judea in a little cultural exchange. They're asking for happy, joyful songs that celebrate Jerusalem and Jerusalem's God, Jehovah. And what they're doing is making fun. They're, they're mocking because the thinking goes like this. If your God is all that great, if Jehovah is really God of gods, then how come you're here? How come 
you're the, we, you're the captives, and you're the, we're the captors, and you're, you're the prisoners. Any, any simpleton would know that our God must be stronger than your God. And, you know, in the modern world of nationalism, we kind of think the same thing, right? Which is stronger, the Judeo-Christian capitalistic ethic of the West or the atheistic communism of Russia? Well, since we won the Cold War, our way must be the better way and the stronger way, right? Isn't that how we think? And now the battle lines in our country and even our churches are drawn between the progressive left and the conservative right. And the question is, who's right? Who will win? Well, we don't know yet. Because the victor is not necessarily on the side of truth. The Lord sent his people to Babylon. Many of these people were believers, but the shape of the nation has turned to unfaithfulness. That's what the chronicler write, wrote 70 years later. Here's 1 Chronicles 9, 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith, because of their unfaithfulness. So what do you do when you're lost and you feel forsaken by your God? Well, you don't sing songs of joy, you weep over what you've lost. That's what Proverbs 25, 20 says. Like one who takes away a garment. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. In other words, when somebody's sad, they don't need you to sing a happy little song to try to cheer them up. That, that's like pouring acid on top of them. When your heart aches, singing is not the solution. Weeping is much better and lamenting prayer better still. King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that you learn more in the house of mourning than in the house of partying. That they are, the people are in Babylon because of serious and great sin from decades of of unbelief. God has sent them away in exile in order to repent and to turn from their idols. It only took them 20 years to crumble from a great king to a king whose sons are murdered before his eyes. And whenever we go to church to teach, teach kingdom prayer, when, when I'm doing a kingdom prayer conference, we ask people to, to write down four things. What do you love about your church in your city? Number two, what do you weep over about your church and your city? Number three, what are the idols in your church and your city? And number four, how should we engage? What do you weep over about your church, your city, and your nation? What causes you to weep? Well, I weep for children whose parents bring them to church, but rarely read the Bible as a family or pray at home. I weep for children who are killed by abortion and never even have a chance to live. I weep for neglected, exploited, and trafficked children who are stuck without mom and dad. I weep for children whose parents confuse their gender. What a mess. I weep for generational poverty 
and hopeless parents who don't know what to do next. I, I weep for our culture's love for sexual sin and pleasure apart from marriage. I weep for churches that sing loud songs on Sunday, but the people are rarely praying or practicing mercy or generosity or holiness or selfless love. Have you noticed that our most popular churches, our biggest churches in America right now are built around professional singers on a stage creating excitement and hoopla every week, trying to make, make sure that people forget their problems and feel good for a few minutes of the week about the world. When you're losing, it's not songs that a heavy heart needs. We need repentance. We need prayer. What do you weep over? Take out your bulletin and write down two things that cause you to weep. Do that right now, please. Grab your bulletin. I gave you 10. Write down just a couple things that cause you to weep. That's going to cause you to pray. I told you I was going to get everybody. It's a heavy week. What causes you to weep over your church or your culture? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a kind of sorrow and tears that are not repentance. The key for God's people by the rivers of Babylon is for their tears to turn to repentance. And that takes us to the second thing I wanted to share with you, the second part of the psalm, and that is a cry of repentance. A cry of repentance. Let's look again at verses 4, 5, and 6. How, how should we sing Jehovah's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue skip, stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, repentance includes sorrow, but sorrow itself is not repentance. You can feel sorry for yourself and, and never see the unbelief in your life. That, that's the sin of self-pity. And, and we've all committed it. We feel sorry for ourselves. Repentance begins with recognition that you have turned from Christ and his satisfaction to get your joy and fulfillment from somewhere else. It may be even a good thing, like friends or family or church or job. Repentance is turning away from anything besides Christ and his righteousness and salvation as the foundation of your life and joy and turning back to adoration of Christ over all things. If I forget Jesus, let the, my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. When God rescued his covenant people from Pharaoh back in, in the book of Exodus, they were in Egypt, and he delivered them from slavery to idolatry. They were practicing the idols of Egypt, and he set them free to worship and serve him instead. It was an incredible grace, undeserving, and his relationship with them is called a covenant. 
And, and like a contract, it, 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 the covenant sets the terms, but this is no regular contract. It's a marriage contract. Now, Sherry and I in August will celebrate our 42nd anniversary. And, and uh, part of our marriage vow is that we would forsake all others. That's what you're really promising in marriage, that apart from my beloved, I will seek no joy from another. And that vow is a symbol of God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. Both individually and as a community, we commit our lives to faith alone and Christ alone. No other gods, no other saviors. Jesus is our first love. No idols, spiritual or physical. And God's promise to Israel and the church is to love us and to honor us and to protect us and to bless us and to adopt us and ultimately to share his glory with us. And he confirms those promises in the cross and the resurrection. God promises incredible blessing to his people for faithfulness. But he also promises destruction and cursing if as a group we are unfaithful and we follow the idols of the world instead. And, and you can read all those blessings and curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and in the New Testament in Hebrews 10. We don't have time to read it all today. You, I think you'll be surprised by what's there. If we are unfaithful, it is a sign that we don't want to be a special people. Just like if you're unfaithful in marriage, it's a sign that your spouse is no longer your special person. It, it, so if we're unfaithful with God, it's a sign that we don't want to be his special people. So since he built Israel out of nothing, he says, I'll grant you your wish and I'll send you back to nothing. He, he will scatter them among the nations. They will live in fear from their enemies and their children will be devoured by wild animals and their cities will lie in ruin. Look at Deuteronomy 28, just a couple verses. And as Jehovah took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Jehovah will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And Jehovah will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you'll find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But Jehovah will give you uh, there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Wow. Wow, so, so what God says, if you want idols, I'll give them to you. And you'll find out that you had it better before, even with the restrictions that God puts in place. When God saved Israel, she was a slave to Egypt. And he says, if they want idolatry instead, he'll send them back to the roadside ditch where he rescued her. Now you fast forward to our psalm 800 years ago, 800 years later, all that God has warned them about has come true. Between the words of Moses and this psalm, it's 800 years of broken promises, foolish judges and kings, along with corrupt priests. You can read all about it in the book of Judges and First and Second Kings and see the repeated cycle of Israel's unbelief and judgment 
and then repentance. Now understand, God is not warning his people in these verses about a few simple sins or peccadilloes or something you're regularly struggling with. God is not capriciously watching to see if we fail. He's not like that. He's merciful and gracious. In fact, he's our deliverer and savior. A relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, presumes failure on our part. It's the first thing we say. I'm a sinner and I have no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we fail in some way, he graciously calls us back to himself again and again, calling us to repentance. In fact, the gospel life is about sin, repentance, and salvation. It's a cycle of life. So God offers to be our Savior if we will trust him alone for salvation. And when we fail in some way, he calls us back. Now the bad news is, is that if we take his grace for granted, enjoying his forgiveness and yet withholding it from others, enjoying his generosity and yet withholding it from others, enjoying his prosperity and yet boasting about what we have and do, if we trust in the things or people that God gives us to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction instead of seeking him as our treasure and pleasure, if we continue in such sin and don't turn from ourselves to him in repentance, then he will cast us out. And the further bad news is this, if we do it together as a church and as a culture and the leadership of this church or many churches quit seeking Christ, then he will bring this church and this culture to destruction. I think we can see that clearly at work in America and the church is responding with singing. Do you know when the greatest attendance was in the church in America? was the 1960s. 70% of the culture was in church on Sunday. Do you know what the percentage is now? It's 20. That's what's changed in 60 years. And people can argue about why it's happened, but it must be some form of unfaithfulness on our part to let the culture get away like that. The most dangerous place to be is a baptized child or adult who has been set apart for God's grace and yet dabbling with idols. It's called syncretism, following the world in the name of Jesus. That's what Israel did. They worshiped the pleasures of Baal on the various mountains in the name of Jehovah. And if the prophet came and said, you got to worship Jehovah, they'd say, oh, we are, we are. So what makes you weep? What are our idols? I think my chief idol is comfort. I don't know about you, but comfort is my chief idol. I'd like to sleep in in the morning, watch Netflix at night, eat really well, and for me that often results in prayerlessness. For others, success is an idol. For some, it's power. For many, it's education. For a great bit of the culture, it's sexual pleasure. Kids aren't even getting married anymore. They just live together. Possessions are an idol. Children are one of our chief idols. Maybe the biggest idol on the left and the right is personal freedom and autonomy. 
You can't take my rights away. I have rights. You can't take them away. I have a right to a gun. I have a right to be whatever gender I want. Not freedom from sin, but freedom from doing what others want. An idol is anything or anyone you turn to for comfort apart from Christ. An idol is anything or anyone you seek out for satisfaction or joy apart from Christ. When you're grieving, when you're happy, it's idolatry that sent Israel to Babylon and it's idolatry that's destroying our culture inside and outside the church. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins and unbelief and idolatry. He bore the judgment of God so that we don't have to. He was imprecated. He was cursed in our place and he rose from the dead to give us life, real life, abundant and free, a life of joyful repentance and rest in his righteousness, a life of purpose as a praying soldier of the cross. So God invites us, beloved, to turn from our foolishness and idolatry and trust in Christ alone for salvation, comfort, and joy because he does not grow weary of showing us grace. Isn't that good? Love for Jesus is the blessed life that God offers his people. So this morning I invite you to turn from your idolatry and renew your love for Christ. For some of you today... Some of you, today is the day to ask Christ to be your Savior and Lord. Maybe you haven't made that decision yet. So I'd invite you to ask him silently now where you are to give you faith because he will never let you go. Third thing I wanted to show you in this psalm is a cry for vengeance. Let's look at verses 7 to 9 again. Remember, O Jehovah, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare. Lay a bear down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now this is a pretty intense. And, and we need our minds transformed by the gospel, I think, to understand it. This is not a prayer for God to avenge our personal enemies or for God to destroy someone who screwed you in a business deal. That's not what this is about. That would be sinful. Vengeance is God's work, not ours. This is judicial language, and it's a prayer for God to bring judgment against his kingdom enemies and the kingdom enemies of his people. Because we're sinners, uh, we, and, and, and we know that we're no better than anyone else. That's the first thing we say when we come to Christ. I'm a sinner. I'm no better than anybody else. I deserve judgment. So this seems harsh to pray that for judgment like this, but that's because we fail to see that the gospel actually kills people, right? The gospel kills people always. You can either ask God in humility to kill off your old heart and to give you a new life in Christ, or in pride you can turn away from life in Christ and you will receive the death of judgment. Do you understand that? 
That's the two options there are. To ask God to kill off your old heart and give you a new one or to leave you alone in your heart of death. One is good news, one is bad news. You can have life in Christ or the misery of your own unsatisfied ego. Those are the two options that are given to us. God treats us like we want to be treated. If you want grace, he'll give it to you. If you want pride and if you want what you want, then he'll give you that as well. He treats us like we treat others. God sent Babylon to judge Israel for their unbelief. It was an act of love for Israel. God allowed the Israelites to chase their idols because that's what they wanted more than him for several generations. So the Babylonians ruined Israel, dashing their children on the rocks. And this prayer of vengeance is for God to treat the enemies of his people exactly as they treat God's people. They're asking God to reveal his glory and salvation by doing exactly what he said he would do to Babylon through the prophet Isaiah. Woe to Israel. Woe to the church for our idolatry and unbelief. But greater judgment surely comes to those who mess with God's people. That's what we see in the scriptures. So now we turn to Jesus so that we can understand gospel vengeance. I want you to see this. When Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth in Luke 4, he opened the Bible to Isaiah 61, verse 1, and here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hallelujah, that's so rich and so good. Here's the rest of it in Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of Jehovah's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of Jehovah that he may be glorified. This is such tremendous news. Do you see it? That when life is full of brokenness and we're full of mourning, that God sees our tears, he hears our cries, and he brings us comfort. Put that back up there, would you please? To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes when it looks like your life has been burned up in the fire. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. It's a heavy passage and a heavy sermon. But I want you to see the delight that God takes in rescuing his children and rescuing those who mourn. The ministry of Christ brings freedom to the prisoner and vengeance on the enemies of God. Both come. They come together. The same cross that brings life to those who grieve over their sin and ask for God's salvation is the same cross that brings judgment to those who turn against Christ and his people. Do you see that? It's unfortunate that in some of our translations, the NIV translates the last word of our psalm as rocks, but it's specifically a singular. It's rock, to dash upon the rock. 
And that makes all the difference, you see, because Jesus is the rock. He is the cornerstone of God's house, his holy temple, his people. In, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a judgment parable called the parable of the tenements. It's a parable of grace to those who believe, and it's a parable of judgment on the Pharisees. Here's just a small part, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When you meet Jesus, there's only two possibilities. You can be broken by his love and grace, or you can be crushed in judgment and destruction. That's the options. That's it. There's no middle ground. I'll talk, think about it later. He, he will take away his grace and leave you in unchanged, idolatrous self-love. Unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and ultimately miserable. That's what hell is like. There's no life without brokenness over sin. It's, it's always painful to have your idols stripped away. You, you can't please God by law keeping. And the pathway of life is a broken heart over sin. And growth in Christ is not about getting better but growing in broken dependence on Jesus. That's what David says in his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm, 31, psalm 137 is a kingdom prayer of for the glory of God to be revealed in his people. For God to thwart the enemies of his church and advance the gospel in every city and nation. We've been through a heavy round, but I hope you're going to finish with hope this morning. This psalm is a call to prayer for God's people because God brings victory through prayer. It's exactly what the church prayed in Acts chapter 4 in response to persecution. First, they prayed the imprecatory prayer from Psalm chapter 2, and then they named the enemies of God. Here it is, a portion, Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are per performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God answered these prayers powerfully in the next few pages of scripture, and he'll answer yours the same way. First, giving his church boldness. They went out and preached the gospel. And many conversions took place and signs and wonders as well. And secondly, God moved Herod out of the way when he killed him in Acts chapter 12. Now notice, they didn't pray for Herod's death. 
They prayed for God to do his will, to reveal his power and deal with these threats so that they could boldly follow Jesus and bring the gospel to their city. When we pray for God's kingdom, we are praying that God would reveal his power with great glory and elevate the glory of Christ's name among the nations and to bring revival to his church. We are praying against public leaders who oppose Christ and praying for God to give us leaders who would promote his church and the gospel. That's what we're praying for. And God answers those prayers. We're praying for church leaders who are men of prayer and integrity, who lead us in spiritual warfare. You can pray for your pastors and your elders and deacons that they would be such men. When you pray for your friends or family who are unbelievers or who are baptized and wandering far from the faith, you should pray for God's discipline. It's love for wanderers to be disciplined. You should pray for them to have no rest and no peace and no joy in their idols while they reject the gospel. I can, I can tell you as a parent, that's a tough call. It's a tough prayer for your grown children. You should pray that God would dash them on the rock of Christ Jesus and give them new life. That, that's often difficult, but you see, it's the only way people will find life. Otherwise, they'll be left with their idols. I don't want any of my children to ever be happy while they're chasing idols. Why would I want such a thing? You're not praying for them because you're better. And not because you've got your life together and they don't. You are praying for your loved ones because you know that Jesus is our only hope, you see. And what a great hope he is. Beloved, there, there are times in the life of God's church, his people, when it's obvious we're losing and you can't sing your way into revival. A, a, a church in revival will sing, but a singing church can't produce revival. It only comes through repentance and prayer as the Spirit visits his people and calls us to, to repentance. It, it's, it's a and now is such a time. We have to weep and give ourselves to repentance and prayer, setting aside the good for the great. Now, I think is such a time. It's such a time for us. That's why our pastor is providentially preaching through Ephesians 6 to call us to repair, to prayer and to battle, spiritual battle. It's time to take spiritual warfare seriously. We are losing. Our culture. It's time for us to engage in the battle. Uh, it's a time for prayer cells and prayer meetings and prayer in families and on Zoom during lunch at work. You know, my friend Victor, when two believers in a village, when they have two people convert, they start a prayer cell and they meet four days a week until they have 15 people and then they start a house church and they continue meeting for prayer four days a week. It's a time to encourage each other in our repentance together, not to be sorrowful all the time and walk around with our heads down. Our God is a big God, but when we consider our weakness, it should make us turn and turn to Christ. It's a, it's a time to to encourage each other and to weep and to pray against the idols in our own heart and in our church and city. I feel this call myself for my own weakness and my own idols. 
It's a time to miss sleep and food and, and other pleasures for something better. We don't fast because it makes us better. We fast because there is something better. Beloved, I invite you to this life of joy. Because when God brings gospel judgment to bear on a culture and calls his people to prayer, it brings rejoicing among us people and great joy in heaven as he answers our prayers. So I invite you this morning to deepen your prayer life, to pray with other people, to be aggressive for God's kingdom, to do it together, that you might see the revelation of the glory of Christ and that he would bring revival to our hearts and our nation. He will do it if we ask. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father and our God, we seek you this morning. We definitely have no place else to turn. And this is a heavy passage, Lord. It's Father's Day. We want to feel light and fluffy going out, and we don't. And the passage has challenged us to be a people of faithfulness and integrity and to consider all those things, what we weep for, what are our idols, to confess them. But Lord, we do want to finish with joy because what we need is you. What we long for is for you to be first in our lives. We know that's our theology, but Lord, we're struggling in our practice because we're weak and often faithless. So would you fill us with your spirit once again, that we would be faithful, that we would be men and women of prayer, that we would not be willing to watch our culture die a slow death without praying and engaging and working together. To see not only a change in our families and our church, but in Carrollton and in our nation. And when we see those things, Lord, we will count them as answered prayers and we'll give glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.